the following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, January 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Every Sunday morning in a very remote part of Cuba, uh, a congregation in some ways very much like ours, but also in some ways very unlike ours, uh, gathers together. And we'll, we'll name their pastor, Pastor Carlos, for keeping his name private. That's not his name, but that's what we'll, we'll, we'll say. Every week when the congregation comes together, uh, a couple of things happen. They sing, they pray, and then Pastor Carlos will go to a really kind of tattered, uh, beaten up chalkboard. And he will write on the chalkboard one or two verses of scripture. There's no 85 inch screens or anything like that. Uh, he'll, he'll write on this chalkboard one or two verses of scripture. And everybody that's gathered together, that's prayed, that, that's sang, that's there, they will pull out um, their own little notebook or uh, flip pad or, or whatever they have to write on. And they will write down the verse or verses uh, that the pastor has written on the chalkboard. And they will write them down precisely. Because these are the only collections of the Bible that any of them actually have. Week by week, they're, they're building from what he's able to write on the board for them. Their own personal collection of God's word because they don't have a Bible. Then one Sunday morning, a man showed up to the congregation that they did not know. Um, again, this is in a very remote part of Cuba. And he showed up with a box. And in that box were a hundred Bibles. Enough for every household, family in that little congregation to have a Bible of their own. And Pastor Carlos was undone. And this man who later told the story said through tears, Pastor Carlos was praising God for the miracle that he was experiencing. He said, these Bibles have arrived to make the heart of our church happy. These Bibles, he said, cover the greatest need of our church. In Cuba... If you were able to get a Bible of your own, you were going to have to get it off of an underground market of some sorts. And the stories go that in Cuba, to get one of those Bibles, if you were able to get to an underground market where they might be, they would cost you two to three months' salaries just to get one. Uh, this church was in a very remote part of the country. It wasn't even in a, a city like Havana or anything. It was way out, hard to get to, where people weren't going and Pastor Carlos said, for our life, for our entire life, communism has controlled everything that we can learn and read. And having your own Bible, it means it's me and God. I hear his voice. It's me and his word. No one can control my access to him. And I hear stories like that, or I read stories like that. And on one hand, at first... It's almost inconceivable to me that in places that don't seem in my mind whatever, whatever far-flung regions of the world might be, that in places that don't fit that category in my mind, like the country of Cuba, there are still many people in places that have zero access to a Bible. It baffles my mind and, and is troubling to me, but... Again, I hear a story like that. And, and if I'm honest, equally troubling, and maybe it should be more troubling at least, is how we, who do have access to Bibles, stacks of them in many ways, shapes, forms, and fashions, how we who do have them don't often seem to delight in and depend upon them the way we hear brothers and sisters, even like that church in Cuba. The, 
the light and depend upon them the way that they do. Again, if we're honest, and, and sometimes we'll say this, this can be for some people one of the hardest places to feel like you can be honest, as ironic as that really is. If, if we're honest, I think for a lot of us, we hear a story like that. And the first thing we think or the first thing we feel is discomfort. It, it makes me uncomfortable. If we don't deal with the discomfort, that discomfort can quickly morph into feeling ashamed. I do have one. I've probably got 10. I've got ones I color in. They're coloring books. They're in every translation I want. I've got a million of them. And if we don't deal with what's making us feel so ashamed, that, that sense of feeling guilty and ashamed can quickly, very quickly, morph into a level of defensiveness when we hear the story. Well, here's why my reality is different than theirs. Well, of course, they love it in such a degree. They live in a different place and have different pressures. It's different. All of a sudden, we get really defensive, and we don't deal with what's causing the defensiveness and what's spiraling down the road on that spectrum. It, you and I, if we're really honest, we'll hear a story like that, and at some point along the way, we'll, we'll just wind up feeling defeated in the end. We'll hear it, and we'll just go, well, that's just not me. That's them. It's just not me. Why? Well, we, we come into a, a room like this with a lot of varied experiences with the Bible, a lot of varied uh, relationships with the Bible. I mean, for some, on, on one side of the experience and the relationship, you may have been exposed to the Bible your entire life in your home or experienced the Bible in a church growing up. And, and in one of those or both of those experiences, the Bible may have been used as an instrument of abuse or even control. I sat one time years ago, not here, but in another setting with a woman who had been married. She was older than I was, and she had been married for probably 15 to 20 years at that point. She and her husband wanted to build their marriage, their family, their home, according to God's word. They had all the right, they said all the right things, right? We were sitting there talking and she's unpacking this and confiding in me that part of the struggle she's having and the breakdown that's occurring in her soul and in her heart and now in her marriage is because her husband and the church they came from and the homes they grew up in interpreted the Bible in such a way that every single month, this woman for over seven days would have to sleep on the floor out of her bed because she was unclean. And she would have to go through a series of different practices in order to be clean again, to be able to enter back into her bed, be with her children and a whole host of other things. And, and the list went on. I'm just giving you an, an example that probably you can figure out in your mind. And we're sitting there and this had been how she had come to experience the Bible. I mean, for others, the, the Bible is quite literally the textbook in your school, right? You open it up, you memorize it, you take tests on it, you know certain things, you get A's, and people are happy with you. We're honest, in our homes, sometimes as parents, we can treat the Bible that way with our kids. It's a textbook. I need you to know this. You have to read this. And on and on and on. And I get the feeling of that. I mean, listen, it is the primary instrument of my job. It's very easy for me to have a relationship with the Bible that looks at it like a manual for my work. I go to it, read it, understand it, pick it apart, be able to classify it, codify it, communicate it. And I get it. I, I, we can have these relationships to the Bible that on the best days are less than what it is intended for, the gift that God has given to us on the worst days, far, far from its intended purpose. And then we come together on a morning like this and we open the Bible up to Psalm 119 and we listen to the way the psalmist speaks about the Bible. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, we can find ourselves facing that well, that's just not me feeling all over again. What do I mean? 
Well, I just want you to listen for a second to some of the things, the way that the writer of Psalm 119 kind of expresses his heart with regard towards the Bible. He says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. You got to read that like a human for a second. In the way, the manner of living, the life according to your testimonies, your word of reality, I delight, my heart delights, as much as in all riches. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Read it like a human. What would thousands of gold and silver pieces do for the situation you're in right now? The law of your mouth is better to me than all of it. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. My soul is consumed with longing for your statutes at all times. Your testimonies are my delight. Behold, I long for. You can translate that same word other places in the Bible as pant. I pant for your precepts. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. How sweet, verse 103, are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy, the joy of my heart. Not a joy, not one of many joys, not a joy at different times. They are the joy of my heart. Pastor Carlos, you you have brought joy to the heart of this church with this word. Now, unless we tune the psalmist out altogether or somehow avoid having to listen to him, when we hear Psalm 119, we're left having to consider if our own heart, if our own life, if our own attitude towards God's word reflects something of what we read here. And again, if we're going to be honest, recent studies of the broader church in this country, recent studies of my own heart, would say not quite as reflective as I would probably want to admit But here's the good news. You and I are not condemned to a life of dullness of heart. We're not condemned to a life of constantly misplaced delights with regard to God and his ways. We don't have to be stuck there. We don't have to live there. We don't have to remain foreign to the experience of the psalmist and even the experience of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. This morning, I want us to spend our time doing the best that I could describe as an expose of sorts on Psalm 119. To consider Psalm 119 and our own heart. Psalm 119 and me. Friends, it's not meant to be a song of condemnation. It is a song of invitation. And I want you to hear the invitation this morning of the psalmist. It is a psalm that has set the course of many faithful saints and women of old in a direction of joy and delight. In dealing with his own baggage with the Bible. In the different ways that he had read it and understood God and understood his word and his ways. Martin Luther spent an extended period of time just reading and meditating on Psalm 119. Coming away from that time in Psalm 119 and 119 alone, 
Luther said, I would give the entire world in exchange for one leaf of Psalm 119. William Wilberforce, many of you familiar with Wilberforce, leading the end of the slave trade in England, the abolitionist movement in England. Wilberforce would say it was the time he spent daily reciting to himself on his walk from his home to his office, Psalm 119, that he had memorized. Daily reciting it to himself as he walked to work, his heart setting on different points and different phrases as the Spirit would settle on him that day that would shape his heart and shape the steps and the ways and the trajectory of his day that would add up to what we know of his life. Why such delight and dependence? The psalmist for our brothers and sisters in Cuba, for Luther, for Wilberforce. Or it wasn't because anyone said, you have to do this. It wasn't because anyone made them do it. It wasn't because it was a box they had to check off. It wasn't because of the task they had to do. It was because their heart had been captivated. It had been captured by an all-consuming delight. And so this morning, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask that God would stir in us this same taste for and longing for and dependence upon his word. And then we're just going to do a little expose of the psalm in our own heart. So let me pray and we'll, we'll jump in. Father, it, it, it requires the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit to incline and bend our hearts towards your ways and your voice. And so we ask this morning in the time that we have together that you, by your Holy Spirit, would would bend our hearts towards you, would open up our ears to hear your voice, our eyes to see your glory, our our hearts to, to surrender in delight to your word and to your ways for your glory and our deepest joy. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, the first thing that that we've got to at least acknowledge as we do a bit of an expose on the psalm and and our own heart and our own life is that we've got to deal with this, well, that just isn't me feeling that we all have to some degree when we come to hear something like this. And the first thing I want you to know is that this psalm or this song, because it would have been sung by God's people, still sung by God's people weekly around the world who sing the psalms together when they gather, it is a song of invitation for sinners. That's who it's for. Again, the first thing we tend to do when we hear the voice of a psalmist like this or our brothers and sisters and their delight is to think, well, they're different than me. I'm not Luther. I'm not Wilberforce. I'm not those saints in Cuba. Somehow, they're, they're different from me. They're better than me. They, They must be super Christians, right? I want you to turn to the end of Psalm 119. 176 verses. I want you to look at how the psalmist ends this psalm. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. 170 verses out of 176, we'll see in just a little bit, somehow praising and delighting in the wisdom of God and his ways and his word. And he comes to the end and he says, I'm still prone to wander. I'm still prone to get fixated on Things that cannot bring me the joy and the life my heart was created for. I'm still like that dumb sheep that wanders off in a way that will harm itself. Seek me. I haven't forgotten who you are and the promises you've laid out. My heart has gravitated so easily in a different direction. But seek me. 175 verses of joy almost. And it comes down to, I still wonder. 
This psalmist is so aware of how easy it is for our hearts to be prone to wander, for our vitality and joy and delight in God and his ways to ebb and and flow like the seas. He gets it. It's not a psalm or a song reserved for super Christians. It's an invitation for sinners. So relax a little bit. The psalmist is inviting you to be captivated by the many-sided splendors of God's word. Again, throughout the song, he, he uses various words to refer to what we would call the Bible or the scriptures or God's word. As I just said, 170 out of 176 verses all refer explicitly to it. And each word that he uses is is just pointing to a different aspect of it. It's the many-sided, like a diamond, another angle of the beauty of the thing. It's just carrying a different emphasis or weight or understanding in how he sees it and receives it and surrenders to it. I'll show you real quick, just so you can kind of know as you read through it. The most common word he uses is the word law. Now, that word, it it carries with it the the weight in Hebrew of authority. And he uses it, and so are the other writers in the scriptures. They use it at times to speak of a single command that God gives, and they use it at times to speak of the whole body of God's word. But with that weight of authority, the psalmist is reminding us, as he's reminding himself, that God has not just revealed himself and revealed his word for the sake of revelation. It's for our surrender. It's for our obedience. It's for our life. It's not just revelation for the sake of revelation. It's that our, our hearts would surrender to it and delightfully give ourselves to it. He'll use another word throughout the psalm, the talking of the Bible, speaking of God's testimonies, probably my favorite right now, God's testimonies. We talked about it last week. It's a legal word. It's as though God is in the witness box giving his truthful statement about reality. These are God's testimonies about life, testimonies about the world in which he created, testimonies to what's true and what's real. These are God's testimonies to how he created the world, what's gone wrong with it, who we are, why he made us, what he's doing, how he's rescued us, the promise of his return, the promise of how he's going to make all things once again right together. They're his testimonies of reality. And in these testimonies, the psalmist says he delights. He'll talk about God's precepts. Right? That comes in his day in the Hebrew language for the language of responsibility. As someone in a business these days or in the military in the way it was written or in the government would look into a situation, they're responsible for the situation, and so they would enter into the situation and give a way out. And the steps of the way out, the direction of the way out of the situation are the precepts. It's as though God has entered in And he has given us the precepts towards life, reality, the way out. He'll speak of God's statutes and decrees. And your Bibles will use those two words interchangeably depending upon your translation. And the Hebrew behind that one is from the verb to engrave. Speaking of the permanence and the lasting reality and significance of these words. He'll talk about God's ordinances or your Bibles might say judgments. These are simply standards. God's standards from his all-knowing wisdom. He lays out for us the standards of his ways towards life. He's clear with us about it. And the psalmist will also talk about God's word. Sometimes your Bibles will will use the word promises. It's the same word. Again, kind of like law in some sense, not carrying the weight of authority of that word. But when he speaks of the word or the promises, he's talking about the all-comprehensive nature of what God has said, right? The truth of what God has said in whatever form he's given it. And of these things, the decrees, the statutes, the testimonies, the law, the word, the promises, the psalmist has come to believe that they are righteous. Five times he says it. Righteous indeed forever, he'll say. Good, sure, Firmly fixed in the heavens, right, wonderful, true. 
and enduring forever. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us to hear him speak of the character of these words because these words, these testimonies, these decrees, they're simply reflective and of the same substance of the one who gave them. They're reflective of the character of God himself, the one and the one alone who is good and true and right and righteous forever, wonderful, enduring forever. By one writer said, the way we treat the word of God is reflective of the way we treat the God of the word. And I'm left listening to the psalmist having to confess that it's not always my posture when I grab my Bible that these are sure, good, righteous, true, wonderful ways, precepts, testimonies, ordinances, and laws for my life. It's not always my posture when I grab it. And if it's not always the posture of my heart when I grab it, is it any wonder that my heart can grow ambivalent to it? When all around me, all day long, and everything I do when I pick up my phone and I turn on my TV and I turn on my radio or I pick up a book or I do anything, there's a whole slew of voices trying to tell me what's good and right and beautiful and true and wonderful and lasting that will bring me joy in real life as opposed to what he said. It's a battle. It's a battle for the joy and the delight of my heart. And so the psalmist isn't condemning us this morning. He's inviting us to see and to pant for the blessing that comes in surrendering to God's word and his ways. See, if you begin to string it together, if you would read it a little bit this week and just take a pencil, take a a marker, whatever you you do, and, and begin to just underline, highlight as you read through it slowly. The confidence the psalmist declares not only in God and his ways, but of the blessing that comes from a heart fixated upon it. You'll see, he said, he'll say that those who fix their faith on God and his ways and are eager to surrender to them won't be put to shame. They'll be kept from sinning against God as your heart is fixated on his ways, his words, his testimonies of reality. They become almost like a a push against the darkness of temptation and sin. You'll enjoy beholding wondrous things spared from scorn and contempt. You'll receive counsel. You'll be strengthened. You'll experience the enlargement of your heart. You'll be able to push back against the desire for selfish gain. That's what we talked about last week. You'll find wise answers for your enemies. You'll experience comfort and delight in the midst of affliction. He talks about that almost as much as he talks about the battle for delighting in God's ways as opposed to the world's treasures. Eight different times he deals with this kind of comfort and delight in the midst of affliction, as well as having great peace. He'll sum it up multiple times throughout the psalm, bringing it all together. You will experience real life. That's what the psalmist is inviting you into. He's inviting you to real life, a quality of living that's in accordance with what God created you for. That can be only met by what God supplies. He's inviting you to a life of real freedom. Look at verse 45 real quick. The psalmist says, I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Some of your Bibles might say broad place. Depending upon your translation, they might do the work for you here and say, I will walk in freedom. Because that's what that word implies. The wide place, the broad place. It's a picture. So picture yourself in in, in the psalmist day. You're in the mountains and and you're making a trek and you're walking on a mountain path full of switchbacks around the mountain. And you're up on the mountain, you're halfway up. But the path is very narrow. 
On your left, it's just sheer rock face. On your right, it's a drop off to your death. You don't have anywhere to go. It is a very careful one foot in front of the other. The psalmist says right here, you bring me to a broad place. You bring me to a wide place. I get to live, walk in. Again, his talk of the way of he's living. I get to live in freedom for I've sought your precepts. Your precepts are the way of freedom. Freedom for what you created me for. Freedom for the life you created me to have. Freedom for you, my greatest delight. Freedom from the enslavement to sin. Freedom from all that would keep and hold me back from that which is the most satisfying to me in you. It's freedom for you. Freedom for your ways. Freedom for my path according to your way. You bring me into a place of freedom, expansiveness. And you don't just leave me there. The psalmist will remind us in verse 105 that your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my, probably know it, path, my way, my steps, my manner of living. That's what he's talking about. Every day, every decision that we make is a step along this path, a step along our way. And what he's saying is apart from having the the testimonies of God, the precepts, the ordinances, the law, the word revealed by God for life, for true life, every decision and every day and every step is like walking in darkness. Right? Have you ever been in the woods or gone hiking and been out later than you anticipated and the sun's gone down and you don't have anything with you and you're stuck in the middle of the woods? Probably some of your nightmares, right? Clouds are covering the moon and the stars. There's no light. And all of a sudden, you're overcome with fear. I'm not sure I'm going to know the way back. All the trees look the same in the dark. All the spaces between the trees all look just alike. All right, what if I get hurt? If I get lost? If I don't make it back? What if you have a headlamp in your pocket? Or a flashlight in your pocket. It's altogether different. That's the picture the psalmist is giving. This word, these ordinances, these testimonies of God to reality, they are a light without which we stumble around in the woods in darkness, not being able to tell the true path to where we need to go. Fumbling around, walking in circles, getting ensnared, tripping, falling, twisting ankles. But this word is a light. It opens up to us the life that God offers, a life that's reflective of his own character and his own ways, a life in the broad place where we're able to see and move in what's most reflective of him and satisfying to us Because that's what he created us for. Your testimonies, he says in verse 24, are my delight, for they're my counselors. He gives us perspective in this life of all the ways that go before us as we're making decisions one after the other. He gives us perspective by his word on which way that we should go that we might have life. This is what the psalmist has come to believe about this word. And it gets even better. See, this invitation is ultimately an invitation for you and I to see and be with Jesus. The psalmist had the Pentateuch. He had the first part of the Bible. Depending upon when it was written, scholars are debating about when Psalm 119 was actually written. It probably had some of the prophets maybe some of what we know of as the histories, but that's it. 
And even with that of what God had revealed to his people and what the psalmist had come to believe about who God is and his ways, we can say yes and amen with everything he says. But this brother only had part of the story. He didn't have the whole thing. We have the rest of God's testimony about reality. We know as Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to two of his disciples on the road, you know, in Luke 24. He showed them how from Moses and the prophets, what the psalmist had, how from Moses and the prophets, everything was ultimately about him. The word, the testimonies, the statutes, the ordinances, the decrees that was made flesh, that lived among us, that lived the blessed life, the blameless life the psalmist talks about in verses 1 and 2. The life that we were created to live, but continue to be so prone to wander off from. He lived that blameless life according to the statutes and decrees and ordinance of the Father with delight and joy, embodying everything the psalmist speaks about. And he did it for us. It all points to the one who would then die in our place for our proneness to wander. For the eagerness of our hearts to delight in things that can never satisfy. To think that other things will, will bring us along the path to real freedom and real joy. This word brings us to the one who died in our place for our sins. Who God accepted and received as a suitable sacrifice. Acceptable and pleasing in his eyes by raising him from the dead. So that all who look to him... In confidence and faith, who trust into Jesus, we get to receive from him the blamelessness that only he has deserved. See, we, we come to this word, right? And this is how we get to be with him. This is how we know him. This is how we walk with him. This is how we talk with him. This is how we draw closer to him. This is an invitation to be with Jesus. I love it how, how he says it in Matthew 11. I love how Eugene Peterson kind of paraphrases it. We've read it around here before. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Right? Are you burned out on understanding this book to be this manual that you just got to check off your, your daily obedience to and, and just do all these different things thinking somehow you're, you're earning something before God and God will be happy with you. But when you hear people's delight and joy, when they think about God and his ways, you go, well, that's just not me. I don't share it. That's not my heart. That's not my hunger. That's not my delight. I've done all the things I think everyone's told me I'm supposed to do, but yet I hear the psalmist and I hear Luther and I hear the church in Cuba and I go, that's just not me. Jesus says, is that you? Are you tired and burned out on that? The great English churchman, J.C. Ryle, would say you're suffering from the peril of self-satisfaction and just moving the bookmark in the Bible daily, preening yourself on keeping a habit? Are you burned out by the habit and the self-satisfaction? Seen but not seen? Jesus says, come to me. Come away with me and, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and Learn the unforced rhythms of my grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. How do we do that? How do we walk with him and keep company with him? We do it by his word. God's testimony about his son. We go where we know him to be. We go where we know he is. That's why we're there. It's an invitation to be with Jesus, to hear from Jesus, to keep company with Jesus, to see Jesus, 
so that by God's grace and the work of his spirit, we might become increasingly like Jesus. In our house, my, my, my wife always talks about it like closing the gap. Right? We talk about Christ's likeness and wanting to be like Christ, and we tend to categorize that in our minds as being you know, nicer, more, more gentle, maybe more patient. But, and that's true, but the more we keep company with him and walk with him and see him and delight in him, the more like us he makes. And the one who said, if you want to be with me, you're going to have to be able to deny yourself and take up your cross. We become better at denying ourselves for the sake of Jesus and others. And the gap gets smaller and begins to close. We get to be with him. That's the invitation. And so the psalmist said, if this is sweeter than honey to him, then more to be treasured than gold or silver, then I have to do anything but ask myself, well, how much more so now that I know it's inviting me to be with Jesus? I've got the rest of God's testimonies. How much sweeter could it be for us now? And I don't say that by, by means of trying to, to guilt you. That, that's an invitation to life. That's what he's giving us. I mean, if I'm honest, I, I just, I'm just way too easily satisfied with how easy my life actually is. So satisfied with the ease that I don't really feel like I need Jesus that much. I feel like I've got life, right? I wake up and it's warm. It's like 20 degrees outside, but I'm not 20 degrees. I'm warm. I got coffee cooking downstairs. I got plenty of clothes to choose from, although I tend to wear the same thing. I got plenty of clothes to choose from, right? I, there's no government telling me that I've got to go to an underground market to spend half a year's wages to buy a Bible to read God's word to me. I've got 15 of them. Pick a translation. I've got it upstairs. You want a Bible coloring book? I got one upstairs, right? On the worst days for being a follower of Jesus, my neighbors just don't really like me anymore. They have an idea of what they think that means and who I am and how we relate, and they just kind of avoid me. I go into a situation, and the ubiquitous question gets asked, what do you do for a living? That's about as bad as it gets for me. It's not really that difficult. Everything's pretty good. It's pretty comfortable. It's pretty easy. I think the Achilles heel of, of the heart of the American church is just how comfortable we are and how easy things are and the ease that we have. Entire global corporate marketing engines and algorithms drawing our hearts to all of these things that we're told left, right, center, front, back, up, and down are supposed to, to bring us joy and, and happiness. And to a measure, we've got it. And so we hear the psalmist and we hear him like, I, it just doesn't feel like me. I open my mouth, he says, and pants because I long for your commandments. But I hunger. I'm dependent. I've got a dog. When she's sitting here and, and her mouth is open and she's panting, I probably can realize, you know, I forgot to feed you. She needs to eat. The psalmist is saying the same thing. We know that God has told us in how he created us that we're not to live on bread alone, but by what? Yeah, every word that comes from the mouth of God, we can quote it, but do we actually believe that that's his testimony to reality? That that's his testimony to reality for us? We're not doomed. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to settle for something less than thinking God's thoughts, desiring his desires, and living his ways, his path that are reflective of him. 
right? This psalm is not a psalm of condemnation. It's a psalm of invitation. He's inviting us to life, and he's inviting us to see where we are in regards to who God is and the path, the ways in which he is held out, and he's inviting us to plead with God to help us. Incline or bend, talked about last week, bend my heart towards you and your ways. Bend my heart to your commands and your testimonies. Bend my heart, my desires to your son. God doesn't just reveal. He doesn't just illuminate. This is the sovereign, merciful God who's sovereign even over your desires. Bend. The psalmist knows it. God can do this. Bend my heart to you, to your son, to your ways. Give me understanding. Open my eyes so that I might behold, see wondrous things out of your word. Make me, he says in verse 27, understand the way of your precepts. Incline my heart, open my eyes, make me understand. If you're sitting here and you're hearing the stories and you're listening to the psalmist going, that's just not me. He's inviting you to be honest with God. He already knows. He's inviting you to be honest with the only one who can actually do something about it. Who can change the delights of your own heart. He's inviting you to plead with God about where you are and what you really want. And then he's inviting you to exercise the agency that God has given you. That's what he does. He pleads with God to give him understanding, to open his eyes, to change his delights. And then the psalmist meditates on his ways, learns, lives, walks in, runs in, clings to, sets before him, fixes his eyes on, comforts himself with, wants to keep, won't forget, hopes in, prays about, wants more clarity according to, speaks about, and loves. Loves. And says in verse 35, lead me in the path of your command. Help me stay on the path. He takes a step. Friends, how how do you relate to God's word? What might your, your present actions say about your attitudes towards it? Again, that's not, those aren't questions of guilt. They're questions of invitation. God is inviting you through his word this morning to Be honest with him. To look to him in dependence on in humility for the only help that you can find in him and him alone to change your heart. And then he's inviting you to take a step. For some of you, you might not even know what that means to take a step to to begin. It's just beginning by by starting in his word and beginning to read his word. If you've got a a bulletin, you get it every single week, you may have noticed, you may look over, a little section on the front every week says, Seeking Jesus in His Word. There's two chapters that are there each day for years. As a people, we have been reading God's Word together, seeking to see Jesus in His Word. In fact, we have these journals, Seeing Jesus Together. We've got them in the tent, we've got them on the table out there. And they are just a helpful guide to help kind of groove our hearts, give us rhythms and habits in beginning to see Jesus daily in his word, to be with him and keep company with him. In fact, if you get the journal, you open it up, it starts by just asking you to be honest about where your heart is. Just tell God right now, where's your heart? I want to do something else right now. Tell him. There's 25 things I think I need to be doing right now and my mind is so preoccupied. Just tell him, be honest with him. He knows. And then it invites you to pray. Ask him to open your eyes this morning, incline your heart this morning to his word, and then you read, you listen, you simply listen to his word. We're not studying it, we're not picking it apart, we're just listening to it, knowing that he's speaking, and we're asking him to help us to see his son in it, and then there's space to kind of guide us in responding to it and recognizing the things that we see in his word that help us adore who God is, that lead us to a place of 
of confessing our need for him and, and the place where Jesus has, has met that need and a place for us to be able to ask God to work in us what we see there. And it's just a pattern. It's not the way to read the Bible, the only way to read the Bible, but it is a way to take a step and to begin to pattern yourself and not just checking a box, but seeking to be with Jesus, to hear from him, to be with him in his word that we might delight increasingly in him and his ways. If you want one, grab one on your way out. We're going to be having a class soon about how we do this together, doing it together in that class, practicing it together so we can be more familiar with it. But I want you to hear the psalm. It, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to life. That's what God is giving us. And as we get ready to respond to his word this morning, I'll just give you a little encouragement from, from smarter churchmen than myself. George Mueller spent 15 years reading the Bible every single day. At that point, he had read through it, I think, he said, I think the thing said like 35 different times. And he found no delight and joy. And then spending time in Psalm 119 for an extended period, something happened. And Mueller wrote in his diary, the point of, is this. I saw more clearly than ever the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend to every day was to make my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord. Isn't that great if that's your first thought? How am I going to serve Jesus today? That's good enough, but no. He said that's... That, the first thing to be concerned about is not how I'm going to serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state with Jesus and how my inner man might be fed. I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit other believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in the world. And yet not being happy in Jesus and not being nourished in Jesus and not being strengthened by Jesus day by day, all of this might not be attended to in a right and healthy spirit. Blessed, the psalmist says in verse 2, joyful, happy, are those who keep God's testimonies, his word reality, who seek him with the whole heart. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, I, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would do the work of inclining our heart to you and your ways, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. You would open our ears to hear you more specifically, our hearts to delight in you more deeply. Help us to want to be with you, keep company with you, delight in you, that we might increasingly become more like you that our ways might be reflective of your ways, our paths, the trodden paths that you've given us. We ask this in, in your name for your glory, for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com dot o r g